Welcome back to part two of our episode covering chest pain risk stratification. We've got with us Dr. David Emmerich, emergency advanced trainee at Westmead Hospital, who's presenting a paper called The Diagnostic Accuracy of the Emergency Department Assessment of Chest Pain Score, or EDAX, a systematic review and meta-analysis. It was published by Boyle and Body in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in April 2021. So as we've said, that discussion around the heart score, these patients presenting with chest pain to the emergency department require assessment for acute coronary syndromes. And it's an important and significant component of our ED care. Chest pain is the second most common presenting complaint among ED presentations in New South Wales. And we've seen over the last decade in particular, a number of these decisions for tools be developed, particularly to help us identify those patients at low risk of major adverse cardiac events, and who therefore we might be looking at for early discharge. So some examples include this EDAC score, which we're going to talk about, the heart score, which we've just discussed, and other ones, the ADAPT, the Accelerated Diagnostic Protocol, the proponent-only Manchester Acute Coronary Syndrome Decision Aids, amongst sort of several others. Most of these tools, they tend to be quite sensitive, but have varying levels of specificity. EDAC's design and validation studies in particular reported that it tended to perform better, particularly with regards to specificity, compared to the other comparison tools. So EDAX is the decision support tool included in the New South Wales Health Pathway for Acute Coronary Syndrome Assessment. So I chose this article. It's the first systematic review or meta-analysis to look at the utility of EDAC. And so I've chosen it so we might have a better understanding of the evidence underpinning the assessment pathway, which we're encouraged to use every day. The EDAC score essentially is calculated according to a patient's cardiovascular risk factors and presenting symptoms. And then that's combined with ECG and troponin data. So more explicitly, you get a higher score with increasing age. You get points for typical symptoms, such as diaphoresis or radiation of pain. You get negative points by pain reproduced by palpation or occurring or worsened with inspiration. And for patients under the age of 50, your score points for either having known cardiac disease or having three or more of the traditionally considered cardiac risk factors, things such as hypertension, dyslipidemia, diabetes, et cetera. So the criteria for low risk, and, and we're looking at identifying low risk patients suitable for discharge, are uh, an EDAC score less than 16, accompanied by no new ischemia on an ECG and negative serial two-hour troponin. So the objective of this study was to evaluate the diagnostic accuracy as well as the safety of the EDAC score in patients presenting to the emergency department with suspected acute coronary syndromes by systematic review of the available evidence. So the authors performed a literature search and they identified eight studies encompassing 11,500 odd patients with EDAC scores and clinical outcome data available, with the primary outcome of interest being major adverse cardiac events occurring within 30 days of ED presentation. And what was considered a major adverse cardiac event was guided by the initial EDAC publication. So those were events ranging from non-STEMI, STEMI, or need for emergent revascularization, up to and including cardiogenic shock, cardiac arrest, or cardiovascular death. The secondary outcomes looked at were the individual components of these MACE events. So all the studies in the analysis reported data on this primary outcome, 
Uh, interestingly, only two reported a full breakdown of what they considered to be encompassed with these MACE events. Overall, the rate of MACE in this large cohort of patients was 10.5%. And that's consistent with what's been observed with previous studies. So how did the EDAC perform? The sensitivity varied generally between 90 to 100%, with an overall pooled sensitivity of 96%. Interestingly, the pooled specificity was 61%, which is significantly higher than what's been generally observed in the evaluation of other decision support tools, and which had tended to represent specificity in the 20 to 30% range. This essentially means that of those who were classified not low risk, 61% of them ultimately had a major adverse cardiac event within 30 days. The positive likelihood ratio was 2.4 and the negative likelihood ratio was 0.06, very low. So basically on face value, this data would imply that with an overall sensitivity of 96%, the EDAC score would inappropriately label almost 4% of patients as low risk who would then go on to have a major adverse cardiac event within the next 30 days. Interesting, similarly to Australia's discussed in the heart study, they did some statistical manipulation. They looked at the posterior probability, given the low negative likelihood ratio, combined with the slightly lower prevalence of disease in comparison to the pre-test probability, which gave them a post-test probability of 0.7%. And for them, that put them in that target of less than 1% miss rate with that statistical analysis. To note, so there was a trend for EDACs actually to perform slightly better in the populations in the Australasian region, which was studied in comparison to the North American um, populations. So this was not found to be statistically significant. Interesting observation. And there were some limitations to note about the study. Importantly, the authors reported that uh, through their statistical analysis, there was significant heterogeneity between the studies, the eight studies that they looked at. And this was primarily thought to be due to threshold effects. And that's essentially uh, where some sites might have a lower threshold to determine whether a variable, and in this case, we're talking about a component score, the EDAC score would be present or not. An example would be if the pain was reproducible or not, that might vary between different sites. The other significant variable here was the different intraponent assays used. So it wasn't specified whether must use a, you know, the older standard component assay or the newer higher sensitivity assays. And the different assays were used between different studies. So that almost certainly contributed to some of that heterogeneity. Overall, the risk of publication bias and small study effects was, was deemed to be low for this meta-analysis. So to summarize, this was quite a well-done meta-analysis looking at the overall performance of the EDAC score in identifying patients presenting to the emergency department with chest pain and suspected ACS. It's imperfect. The EDAX was highly sensitive and was also significantly more specific than previous decision tools and previous literature looking at patients presenting with ACS. And this suggests that this tool is currently probably the most appropriate decision aid to incorporate into our practice in the ED if it's deemed that it's necessary to have one. Thanks so much for that. David, that was an excellent review. I'm actually not surprised at all that it's a much more specific tool compared to some of the other tools that are out there. And I think that's because it really incorporates quite specific variables that have been independently shown to have good predictive value for risk of ACS. So for example, chest pain radiating to 
the shoulders has a positive likelihood ratio, I think about two and a half for predicting acute coronary syndrome. I think in that manner, the performance from a specificity point of view is unsurprising. What about the sensitivity though? So you touched on what they argued in the paper with the Fagan nomogram. So this is essentially a graphical representation of the process that we undergo in our head whenever we use a clinical decision tool. So we have a pretest probability, which in this case, they judge as about 10%. And they multiply that by the likelihood ratio from the tool. So 0.6, and they come up with a post-test probability. And then they see whether that post-test probability is an adequate post-test probability for excluding or including the disease. So the argument that these authors suggested was that with with a pretest probability of 10%, you end up with using the EDAX score with a post-test probability of just 0.7%, which meets that miss rate cutoff that's been deemed desirable by emergency physicians of sort of 1% to 2%. Having said that, contradiction, the sensitivity was only 96%, which suggests that we're missing 4%. How much sensitivity do we need? Do you feel reassured, David, that, that the EDAX tool is safe? I mean, it's a legitimate statistical analysis that they've done. And based on this particular cohort that they've looked at, it performed to that standard. But that's knowing what the outcomes were within that 30-day period. So whether that is replicable in real life is a significant question. And the sensitivity really, if you look at all the other clinical decision tools that have been developed, they're all pretty similar. There's not really been one that significantly has performed much better than the others. And they're all around that 96, 97% mark. It would be surprising if this one reached that 1% or less than 1% risk consistently when the others don't. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, David. The other thing to note, and Karan alluded to this in the earlier episode, which is that we're increasingly seeing patients presenting younger and younger. And I think part of that is because in many emergency departments, you know, and particularly in Western Sydney, our prevalence of acute coronary syndromes is quite significantly abnormal, I would say, compared to more affluent areas. My pretest probability for assessing a Westmead patient that is coming in with chest pain was extremely different to my pretest probability when I was at Tweed Heads or when I was at Prince of Wales. And I certainly found that that bore out in the outcome. Given that potential higher pretest probability, do you think that EDAX is useful? And what is your opinion of the use of EDAX, given that you've both worked at Westmead for substantial periods of time? I used it initially when they released it, because everyone was telling me to use it a lot. I found that I spent more time calculating the EDAX score than I did documenting my notes and trying to find that piece of paper that you had to like tick off. I don't know if you guys remember, but it used to be on a printout and like then they would all finish because there was 1 million chest pain patients and then you have to go. What I ended up doing was essentially what I did with the heart score, which was just realizing that, oh, these are all very salient elements on a clinical assessment. I've always found it really challenging to extrapolate population-based pooled sensitivity data to individual patient practice. I think that's something that I've been very hesitant to do clinically. I think it's great when you're in an M&M or in an RCA or something, and you can say, hey, look, we use this widely applicable tool that's kind of like broad brushstrokes approach to ACS. But I think you miss the finesse that's involved in clinical assessment when you just solely rely on something like that. And I think the EDAX falls in the same category as so many other clinical assessment tools, ranging from Alvarado scores, twist scores, like they're all great uh, to give you an understanding of what might be salient, but they don't really assist you in 
providing best care on a pragmatic basis, right? Then when you raise points about pretest probability and understanding prevalence of disease, like you also have to remember that when you're working in a tertiary hospital, you've got prevalence that differs where you sit in the department. If you work in urgent care or a fast track area, and a patient comes there with chest pain, that's a different population subset to the patients who enter resus, to the patients who are in a bed in acute, to the ones who discharge against medical advice from the waiting room. So how fine are you going to start cutting this up, right? We know that a lot of patients who discharge against medical advice from the waiting room, they all have very good outcomes. There's a big Western Australia study that followed them up and they were fine. So I don't know how to interpret that. Do I am supposed to be calling back them if their EDAC score was high? I'm not sure. And then you've got patients who present to urgent care and we all have disasters from our fast track and urgent care areas hopefully triage has sieved those patients right so the the, the pretest probability and prevalence of ACS in that particular area of the ED is different if you're going to use it at that fine grain level if you're really going to look at it and say well they pooled prevalence data from across Australasian EDs so it's more applicable I would say well I mean you're still not doing a good enough job then because you need to really look really, really closely. Because a patient in acute who has severe chest pain who's managed to make it into a bed, that's a very different patient to a patient who has walked in, even if they're the same age. If they've walked in and someone at triage has said, well, they should be fine, there's probably nothing, and the category three them and put them in through subacute or something, you will find that if you, the incidence is, is different. And so I don't know then how you can have a blanket approach if you're going to trust your initial triage system to do a good job of sieving patients between areas of the department. Uh, Karen, I'd be interested to know what you think. I think I had similar thoughts. So uh, um, very briefly, my views on the paper, uh, well presented again, David. So generalizability, I think, is what I wanted to focus on. And we saw in the paper that they had different sensitivity results from USA and, and Australia, as you mentioned, and we spoke about their thresholds being different, which is an important point. And again, the pretest probability, I think, plays a role there as well, because you have a very different setup in America, you have a very different setup here. There's a lot more, obviously, private healthcare there. Yes, exactly. For that reason, where you run the EDAC score is going to significantly affect your sensitivity. As you can see on the normogram, the lower your pretest probability, the better the score is going to perform. For that reason, look, I think that these scoring systems do have a role as a supplement, purely as a supplement to clinical acumen. And in areas, the lower pretest probability you have, the more I think these roles can be helpful. The other comment I want to make is I think the scoring system as a whole is, is a lot more robust and thorough, of course, compared to our prior discussion on the hard score. I do like the fact that they use troponin and ECG as separate points. It's not included in the score. And as soon as your troponin or ECG is abnormal, it, it places you above low risk. But just a comment on that, I think troponin is almost synonymous with ACS. But as we progress, this is becoming less and less the case. You guys have probably heard the concept of minoca or myocardial infarction with normal coronaries, where you're having other causes or other etiologies for troponin rises. And in the era of COVID, COVID vaccines and this explosion of myocarditis that we've seen, particularly in the last 12 months or so, suddenly the utility of troponin, I'm not going to go as far as to say it has to be questioned, but it does need to be taken with a slight grain of salt. A lot of these scores use it in an era where it was maybe not as sensitive. Now we have a very sensitive troponin result and it's picking up a lot of other things as well. So that has to be, I think we have to be fairly mindful of. And finally, I think that threshold effect that David, you mentioned with um, the, the scoring system, I think that clearly demonstrates that the problem with these scoring systems in general, I think generalizability is going to be an issue all the time. People interpret points of a scoring system differently where you go. For that reason, I think your results are always going to vary. And that's a fundamental problem with any scoring system.
it's similar to the well scoring, isn't it? Like there's, there's always these subjective components. It's do you think it's the most likely diagnosis or not? I mean, that's a really hard question to answer. And is this pain truly reproducible with palpation? You know, there's always going to be significant variability and that certainly that's going to impact on the, the performance of the tool. I reckon I can make anyone's pain reproducible with palpation. <laughs> Promote's got strong hands. Dr. Hao Tran and Dr. Nick Moore have joined us from Liverpool Hospital. I'm Nick. I'm actually a new face. I'm also a research fellow here at Liverpool. Uh, so I do sort of ED research and do a lot of data-based research. And my interests lie in sort of artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, lots of nerd type activities. Ultimately, my interest is in the N equals one trial, which is a really interesting idea that you can kind of using simulation and various advanced modeling to be able to, what I think Prima, you were talking about in terms of trying to generalize using general averages and means from epidemiological studies, but actually applying them on a single patient type basis. I actually think that's one area where this advanced modeling can actually aim to actually help because I think that's actually the strength of a lot of these types of models and you can actually do that and you can actually take in all the data and pull it all together and rather than using you know means and averages from trials which have significant limitations when you're trying to apply it to a patient in front of you. I'm how cardiology trainee from Liverpool and very happy to be here and thank you for inviting me. I have an interest in artificial intelligence and things related to that. So it's interesting um, what you guys describe and, and you know, there's that old chief phrase that uh, uh, truths uh, cease to be because you don't question them. There are you know, a mobile army of metaphors that have ceased to be interrogated. So I think when you make an assertions about a phenomena, it's sometimes good to actually question if the phenomena is a phenomena. When you talk about, you know, a score, like what is a score? Well, a score is essentially mathematically fitting algorithm to, you know, something that is a linear signal. And so what if the phenomenology that you're looking at is not linear? So if you have, you know, X and a Y, you can plot it in space. X, Y, Z is a curve in space. Four dimensions, it moves through time, but then five dimensions, six dimensions. So if you have multiple parameters that are interacting with the signal that's emergent in between, how do you see that with the human eye? You can't see that with the human eye. You can approximate it with a score to understand that it's an approximation is all it is. And then you use that as a tool. And then the clinical gestalt, which is our brain, is much more elegant than that. I think our brain detects nonlinear signals intuitively over time and evolution. And the machines are starting to mimic that. What we do is essentially nonlinear appraisals of a situation. And so, you know, a clinical tool, a heart score is exactly what it is. It's, it's one of the data points that feeds into it. And to have it sit just at the front by itself makes no sense. Thanks, Hal. That's actually a really beautiful explanation for, I think, why decision instruments just in general are so inherently limited. Ultimately, as you say, we're essentially looking at a 2D view of the parameters that have been included in that particular tool's design when actually our gestalt can often tell us things that we don't necessarily completely understand and aren't always completely able to articulate because our brain, you know, is evolved to sense patterns. I guess that brings me to the fundamental question when it comes to heart score or EDAC score. How many of you have actually found these tools or any 
decision tools to be useful compared with clinician gestalt. We've also got Amanda De Silva, one of our ED Journal Club team members joining us. I find that, yes, I like having tools and guidelines and protocols to follow at work, but I rely very much on my gut instinct, I think. You know, you see a patient, you can tell by the look of them that their chest pain is cardiac as opposed to some, you know, costochondritis or something a little bit less intense or life-threatening, I guess, for lack of a better word. But I find that these tools are quite helpful to rule out things and prove that my gut instinct is what I think it is. So I don't think you have a PE. I don't think you have cardiac chest pain. And I can use these tools to show a negative score and kind of justify my decision making in that way. I don't know. Maybe that's not the way to practice, but that's how I find them more useful. That raises a really important dimension. It's difficult to stand up in court and say, oh, why didn't you do the CTPA? Because, you know, my gut told me that they didn't have a PE. That's although that is starting to be something that is being statistically validated. We don't actually have the research yet to actually prove that that's that's useful, even though I guess intuitively most of us can appreciate that that is actually very useful. It does, I guess, give us a bit of defensibility, whether that's justified or not. Certainly from my point of view, sometimes I also struggle with my own uncertainty and I think too much about things and then I confuse myself. And so, you know, sometimes these tools are a useful way to frame low risk patients or low to intermediate risk patients. What does everyone else think about that sort of paradigm, both in terms of, I guess, legal justification and then also in terms of that sort of uncertainty in the component of patients that you're maybe sending home? Personally, I'm sort of taking a, a bit more of an amateurish interest in understanding what clinical gestalt means from a cognitive behavioral point of view. And I guess that translates a little bit into artificial intelligence. I'd be super fascinated to what the Liverpool guys have to say from their context. If you read and try and understand what intelligence means and how that translates to clinical gestalt, I guess what you're really after is relevance realization, right? Like that's one of the most difficult concepts to translate across. Like intelligence is not IQ. It's not your ability to mathematically or statistically comprehend things. Intelligence is, or at least postulated to be, your ability to highlight what is salient and what is relevant. And then when you translate that to the bedside, well, what you're really after and what makes a good clinician at the bedside is their ability to identify salient features. When you think about it that way, the clinical decision-making tools can assist you in maybe flagging some of these salient features on assessment. Now, they obviously are not the be-all and end-all. And why are they not the be-all and end-all? Well, because as was described before, they are only a two or three-dimensional assessment of what's actually going on. And that's why sometimes people find it difficult to communicate their clinical gestalt risk because they are not being provided the linguistic tools maybe to appropriately communicate why they find this salient. Oh, the patient looks a bit pale. That's not in any restratification tool you'll ever find, right? But how many times has a senior nurse come up to you and just said, that patient just looks a bit odd and you go up to them and they're like peri-arrest, right? And so that's really where you need to aim for as an ED clinician. That's what your job is. Your job is to become excellent salience finders. You need to be the person on the floor who will be able to recognize what is salient. You cannot rely on these models to help you with that, but they might be able to start your journey in that way. And that's certainly when I'm communicating with my junior staff, I do encourage the use of these scores in clinical practice because it allows people who have not had the data volume like for me, I've seen thousands of patients. And so I have that. I might not have objectively made an Excel spreadsheet in my brain, but I have that experience behind me to then tell me and give me flags about what's salient. A JMO who's PGY2 doesn't have that data. And then when you translate that to artificial intelligence, I'm fascinated to know, I mean, how many data points do you think you need? It, for me, my head explodes when I think about that. 
how do you load what is salient and what is not? I'd be really interested to know what the um, Liverpool people think about that. I'd just like to continue from that. I think what Pramod said is uh, fascinating in terms of drawing a corollary in AI and all the limited stuff that I know about AI and Nick can collaborate is that AI is a data-driven exercise. But if you have a poverty of data, there are tricks in AI to address that. So there's various different algorithms that you can use as ensemble learning. You can use multiple models. You can transfer learn. You, You have all these solutions and maybe heart scores and scores. I like that. It's, you know, when a junior has a poverty of data, which they can't possibly have, but they need to work and they need to act the score gives them an orientation towards a disposition that is doesn't need the data but gives you something and then consult a senior clinician which has the data points and ultimately dealing with any phenomenal you know the n equals one it's all about chasing the asymptote which is the patient in front of you the uniqueness of the patient in front of you and we had an interesting conversation the other day in the research meeting about we were trying to identify heart failure from remote signals from pacemakers and AICDs. And we're trying to define the phenomena of heart failure. And like a heart failure admission is documented in the EMR. The patients admitted for heart failure it might not be a physiological phenomena. It might be like a social support deficit that they have at home or, or this or that. That might not even be related to their biology, but they get an admission and they get flagged as heart failure. So, so is that really heart failure, even though it's etched as heart failure? Um, I don't know. At what point did you start to feel that you had clinician just stop? Certainly for me, it took quite a few years. And, you know, certainly there was points where I looked back and realized that when I thought I had clinician just stop, I didn't. That may still be the case in a couple of years time. We'll, we'll see. But what about for you? It's not a binary thing. It's not, it's not like one day. Now I have clinician just stop and yesterday I didn't. I think there are conditions or presentations which you see more frequently than, than others, which you will more rapidly become more comfortable assessing. But certainly there are many things that in my training so far, I haven't seen enough of and a bit uncertain about. And there are other things which I've seen a lot of and I'm far more comfortable with. I just wanted to touch briefly on some of the comparative characteristics of the EDACs and the heart score and some of the other decision aids. So David also mentioned the troponin-only Manchester acute coronary syndrome score. There was a useful article published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, I think in 2020, which was a comparison of four decision aids for the early diagnosis of acute coronary syndromes in the emergency department, which essentially compared these three tools, as well as an older score called the Timmy score, in terms of their statistical characteristics in predicting acute coronary syndrome. And they found that TMAX score and the EDAX score actually performed very well. TMAX score had sensitivity of 99%, but I guess we have to bear in mind that it's only been validated in the UK, and at least to my knowledge, hasn't really been externally validated outside of that setting. The use of the TMAX score allowed rule out and discharge of 46% of patients presenting with chest pain. The EDAC score had sensitivity similar to the meta-analysis of about 96%, but was effective at discharging 48% of patients from the ED. The heart score's characteristics were not as good. The sensitivity was 92%, and only 35% of patients were being discharged from the ED. So perhaps less useful, although you have to bear in mind that all these tools were being used with a single troponin strategy. And Uh, Serial troponins do increase the sensitivity of the heart score. And then the Timmy score performed much, much less effectively. So I guess we've got a variety of tools at our disposal. And I think that ultimately, to move on the discussion slightly, I think what we're trying to achieve here is discriminating low from intermediate risk chest pain. 
Karen, from a cardiology point of view, is it fair to say that essentially we're trying to find stable angina? Obviously, and you know, I had this experience the other day, I had a patient whose EDAC score was in the low risk criteria, but he had dynamic chest pain. And so I admitted him regardless of the EDACs or the troponins and ECGs. Is that basically what we're trying to achieve, essentially trying to find stable angina? What is the risk to the patient's who potentially have undiagnosed stable angina of having that diagnosis delayed? That's a good question. And I think I do agree with you. So when you have these risk scores that look at risk factors, family history, all these very classical features that get put into the risk score, you're basically or classically trying to find patients that have symptomatic stable coronary disease, usually. Someone with unstable angina or someone with ACS obviously gets diverted very quickly and is investigated very quickly. That's a, a bit of a, a trap in a way. As some of you already probably know, particularly in the younger population, very dangerous plaque is not necessarily a 70 or 80% calcified plaque down the LAD. It, it might be something that is 30 to 40%. It's non-calcified and it doesn't look so malicious on imaging on CT or, or on other clear investigations. It doesn't show up in a stress test because there's no sort of myocardial oxygen downstream effects. But when this plaque ruptures, you get these dramatic presentations. So there's all this research and all this movement into looking at the nature of plaque on CT or the nature of plaque on angiography to try and help predict these patients. And the problem with a lot of these scoring systems and the problem with a lot of this is that you're not going to pick up these patients at all. To be honest, it's hard. We don't really have clear way at the moment to pick up these sort of this dangerous group of patients. But yes, at the end of the day, you're, you're trying to find these patients that come in with stable symptoms that are low to intermediate risk. And really you're looking at stable coronary disease, which is interesting because most of the time, stable coronary disease, you can manage slowly, not dramatically. They don't necessarily need stents. They don't necessarily need urgent interventions and can be managed with medical therapy at a slower rate. That's helpful. And I guess it leads me to my next question. I've seen at different sites, different pathways for managing this particular subset. It's really the, the group that we're interested in. 22-year-old chest pain can go home and see the GP. 70-year-old with ECG changes is going to be admitted. But this intermediate group in Westmead, we have our excellent rapid access clinic service, which I personally find to be you know highly effective. In Auburn, we had the luxury of having lots of cardiologists in the area so that even though we don't have a rapid access clinic, we have a rapid access service. In other areas that don't have the benefits of, of, of that, we're perhaps a little bit more vulnerable in discharging these patients home. How I'm interested in what the process is in Liverpool. And then after that, Karen, I'd love you to tell me a little bit about Rapid Access Cardiology Clinic. I recently did have a, a look uh, into the evidence behind this. I believe that Westmead has actually been relatively pioneering in this field. What are the pros and cons of Rapid Access Clinics and you know who should go to a Rapid Access Clinic? We have a rapid access clinic uh, and uh, it works. I mean, what you introduce with the rapid access clinic is the dimension of time. And I guess in some ways, an admission is an introduction of the dimension of time to see if what you're looking at will manifest itself or not. And trying to get that kind of temporal disposition as to what entity you're dealing with and have it coupled to the appropriate temporal dimension is, is what you're talking about in terms of stable coronary disease versus unstable coronary disease. And so we, we do have it. The registrars, six of us use it in different ways. You know, some people follow the guidelines, some people just use clinical uh, gestalt. And it doesn't, it doesn't really matter ultimately, because as long as there's another time point in which there's a reassessment, I think that renders the patient safe. 
the thing that makes a difference is just the time that transpires and the, the reassessment, the revisit of the history. I think at Westmead, it's a very similar experience. RAC or Rapid Access Clinic uh, has been probably, I'd say, a game changer in the way we triage phone calls, the way we admit patients in general. Cardiology, obviously, is a very busy specialty, Liverpool, Westmead, wherever you go. And having that ability to have patients that you're not so sure about or fit into this low to low intermediate category that you have the safety of having a port of call or a review within the next week is, you know, it's a blessing. And similarly, how I think we do the same thing where most of us don't really go by any framework, which is interesting because we've talked about all these scoring systems and all these protocols, but really most of us make a decision based on the story we hear, which sort of feeds it back to emergency and, and the story that's given to them. So it's, it's a bit of Chinese whispers in that regard, but we, we tend to rely on our clinical acumen. I think the, the pros of a rapid access clinic are, are fairly obvious and logical and in the sense that you're having patients that are not slipping through the crack, they're coming to ED and they're being at Westmead, say, for example, and they're being seen at the same hospital in another clinic. So it's very hard to lose patients or have patients fall into a crack or get missed. There are still some cons. And I think these cons we kind of accept as just part of the process to, to catch more patients. And that is a lot of these patients come in, they get clearly over investigated. So patients that, you know, routinely would not be seen in clinic or would not be referred to a cardiologist, say privately, we are now seeing in rack. And even as an AT, when, when I used to answer these calls, in my head, often I'd be thinking, this patient doesn't have coronary disease. There's no chance this patient has coronary disease. But we start thinking from a medical legal and a, and a sensitivity approach in the sense that you don't want to miss anyone. You're not so interested in picking up disease. You're more interested in not missing disease, which is similar to the scoring systems. It's, it's similar to any, I think, rapid access type setup. Yeah, I, I think sometimes these patients do get over-investigated. Also, the investigations that we choose are very variable depending on cardiologists. Some people get stress tests, which have its own caveats in sensitivity and specificity. Some patients get more aggressive testing or functional testing or CTCAs. And then sometimes you're left with information that you're not sure what to do with. You know, if you have a CTCA that has coronary disease, but you're not so sure that the patient really had a classic history. What do you do with that? Do you act on that coronary disease? Is it a bystander? So it sometimes creates more problems and questions than, you know, you set out to do. But overall, it's obviously a game changer. It's an excellent initiative. Uh, again, I don't know the, the actual fundamental research statistics and evidence for it, but I know quite clearly it has reduced admissions and it has improved outcomes in the long term for these patients. Certainly from my reading, and this was a few months ago for an unrelated project, there is relatively limited safety data in terms of rapid access cardiology clinics with the knowledge that our traditional approach to chest pain prior to our you know, last 5, 10, 15 year explosion of chest pain presentations to emergency departments was to essentially admit people to have their streamlined investigations. It sounds to me like rapid access cardiology clinic predominantly leads to over-investigation rather than under-investigation. Have you found that there tends to be patients that get discharged from the ED and then end up having a negative outcome because, you know, maybe the interim timeframe, they developed an adverse event or otherwise you found when they reached rapid access clinic that perhaps they uh, would have been safer in hospital. Has, has that ever been your experience? For sure. You definitely get the odd patient where for some reason, either an integral part of the history was was missed or, or not, they're not communicated or not in my end or from the cardiology ATN was, was overlooked when it was actually presented to them or the patient didn't give it up. And there's been a lot of situations where you have patients and 
and they have critical disease. And you look back and you see whether something was missed and, and whether these patients should have been admitted. But I kind of think that's a part of the game. Rapid Access Clinic is there to try and catch a lot more people or, or prevent a lot more unnecessary admissions and prevent a lot of negative outcomes on or inadequate discharges. We're getting better and better and better at it. But no, it happens all the time. I think it's not a perfect science. You're, you're going to miss things or, or the patient's not going to give it up or patient that has a 30 or 40% lesion. And then suddenly between the time that they came to ED and then they came to RAC, they've had a, an adverse event. They presented a hospital with a coronary event. They've had another run of atrial fibrillation um, or they had a PE the whole time and um, their symptoms haven't improved and their CT scan shows a, a very large PE. So it does happen. Yeah, it's not that frequent, but it does happen. I advocate for the, the use of the rapid access clinic, but I think there are a couple of things that maybe the statistical analysis don't cover. So for example, there's two things that I can think of off the top of my head. Discharging patients home in our area health service with a fixed appointment time to see a cardiologist is very different to discharging them home to go see their GP, to then maybe give them the GP the letter, to then the GP maybe trying to get an early cardiology review. Like, well, those are two very different pathways. Even though, so you would say in the absence of a clinic, I would send this patient to the GP. That doesn't translate to the same health outcome because we know that patients in our area health service don't have the best health literacy. And communicating your concern for the patient is very different saying, hey, look, I'm worried about your chest pain. I don't think you need to come into hospital and your blood tests are normal, but this is not the end of your clinical journey. Instead of telling you to go see your GP, which you know we say to a whole spectrum of otherwise benign presentations, we say, no, look, I've spoken to the cardiologist and we're worried enough to give you an appointment date and time on a card. Here you go. See them next week. That's a different risk communication to go see your GP. You're fine. I think patients, particularly from the culturally diverse backgrounds that we work with, interpret those two clinical interactions as very different. And so I think having that option there in the rapid access clinic is huge. Like, it, I think there is, and you can't communicate that mathematically, like what that means to the patient. And I think having that tool in your back pocket is very helpful. I've certainly found that very helpful. Secondarily, current uh, to your point about history maybe being inconsistent or difficult, it's funny. I think I always obviously take my own history, but then I also corroborate that with the JMO's history and corroborate that with sometimes even the nurse's history, because you have to know that there's good evidence that the history that a patient gives improves with time as they are questioned by healthcare professionals, right? Like as just as our gestalt improves about what's wrong with the patient, their own gestalt improves about what's happened to them and what's wrong with them and salient features become more relevant. And so I'm not at all surprised that things are missed through the ED. I think it says a lot about maybe the way we approach taking histories and maybe some changes we can make in the emergency department to better source a more accurate history. Those are just two points that I thought maybe statistical reviews of rapid access clinics might miss, but I think are important to communicate. There's still a lot of factors that contribute to cardiovascular risk which are not quantified and which are not very well understood. And you are not going to get that taking a history from a patient and doing some bloods in ED. For example, we, you know, we all know working in Westmead and Liverpool saying being subcontinental contributes significantly to the way that you're managed and the way that actually show your disease. There's a lot of unclear mechanisms as to why that's the case and what the actual say the genetic predisposition is. And we haven't quantified that. And there's a lot of things that may be contributing to the patient's risk of coronary disease, which we just don't understand or can calculate. So it's, I think, going to happen that we're going to miss things. I think as a, as a whole, the RAC serves a, a great purpose. Thank you so much, guys. That was really excellent discussion. I think there's a lot of sort of dynamic areas here. Probably there's always going to be elements of patients that we miss and, and that's inevitable across the entire spectrum of presentations. On top of that, you know, what do we do when we, when we find the abnormal follow-up test results? 
I think as Howard was alluding to earlier, adding the dimension of time with rapid access clinic is also invaluable. Getting to see that patient a week later and finding out what's happened in that interval would be a, a very useful data point as well. David, do you have some take-home points for us? And then after that, we'll go to our interlude segment. EDAX, when it's used in conjunction with ECGs and serial proponents, it's highly sensitive at identifying patients at risk for ACS. However, it had a miss rate of up to 4%. And really, it's another reminder that EDAX and other decision support tools are imperfect and should only be used to complement clinical decision-making rather than place it. Karen has been kind enough to prepare the interlude segment for us. Once again, we started 2022 on the back of a pretty tough year worldwide and, and specifically in the medical fraternity. But I think, you know, there's some fresh excitement in the air. You know, this might be the year the pandemic ends. We have new doctors starting. People are moving into new roles. And I thought I'd take this opportunity to share some lessons and, and some pearls I've learned over my years so far. I'm hoping that it might be helpful to some of the newer generation coming through, as well as some others who might be starting to get disillusioned by it all. So the term work-life balance is seemingly going out of fashion. I think people are talking more about integrating work into your life instead. Put simply, having other interests for me has kept me sane. It's kept me inspired and kept me motivated to push and drive my career. Now, whilst all medical specialties are busy, I think careers in ED, critical care, cardiology, they're fast-paced with round-the-clock work, and that can cause burnout, and it can risk us becoming apathetic towards our goals. I think over the last decade or so, having a career in medicine is, is getting harder. Jobs are getting more and more and more competitive, and my fear is that this might be causing some of our bright sparks to aim lower. I haven't even touched on how demanding our work itself can be. I mean, I vividly remember as an ED resident, a normal day would start by picking up three patients, working nonstop, and then before you'd sorted out the first batch of patients, you'd pick up some more. I remember lunch was, was a luxury, and you'd finally get to breathe on the drive home and wonder to yourself where your day went. And I think that pretty much summarizes most of our lives in medicine. I'm not sure about all of you guys, but I mean, since I started... I haven't had the chance to stop. You know, things have kept rolling on. And when I really think of it, up until now, I don't think I've ever paused, stopped and reflected on my journey so far. That's probably up until now, though. I think I recently finished my specialty training at Westmead. And fortunately, I've now had a lot more time to myself, which for me means lots and lots and lots of golf. It's funny where you draw parallels to your own life, but, but golf has taught me so many things, not just about life, but about work and perspective, and I wanted to share some of my lessons from the course. See, golf's probably more than a hobby for me. It's been my passion, my escape. And whilst I've been told on multiple occasions that I'm a walking cliche as a cardiologist who plays golf, for me, it's taught me patience. And most importantly, it has taught me how to take a loss, which I think is a vital skill in our world. Golf's one of the hardest games in the world. And like in life and medicine, when you start, you're usually embarrassingly bad. I think that's similar to internship. On the wards, small procedures like cannulas or blood gases might seem daunting at first, but that's okay, everyone starts somewhere. The more you play, the more you improve. And I think the beauty of it is that even though you play the game with others, you really only compete with yourself. I think like life, golf I see as a marathon and not a sprint. And you need to remember that a few bad holes are inevitable and they don't define your round. 
See, sometimes you hit good shots and score poorly, and sometimes you hit bad shots and the ball ricochets from out of bounds and straight into the hole. And that's pretty much a career in medicine. At the end of the day, I think you've just got to enjoy the process because really that's what we're here for. So I say, if things don't go your way, your patient doesn't turn the corner like you'd hoped, or you don't get the job that you should have, or you fail your college exams because of a single mark or, or a biased examiner, just try and roll with the punches. Because I think these tough times are inevitable in our world. The most vital thing I think is to give yourself time in between to switch off, rejuvenate, recover, and come back stronger. Remember that your day will come and that there is light at the end of the tunnel. So finally, in conclusion, I'd say make time for your friends, your family, and most importantly yourself, because just like a good golf swing, the secret is all in the balance. That's it for part two. Thanks to everyone for joining us. That was a really illuminating discussion. Stay tuned for part three, where we're looking at the future of medicine and the role of artificial intelligence in chest pain and in medicine more broadly. As always, please email any comments, questions, or feedback to westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. And we look forward to being in your ears again soon. Maybe I could keep you here someday. But we come apart, didn't mean to steal that time you had. Could have never planned this so romance. But now we passed the month of May, you know it's great for you. And you don't fall too much, but I fall apart. Cause you said I'm not around. We in one big rush every time we start, yeah. Cause you said you love me now. I'm gonna saw too much and we fall too.